0: Section 42 of Hinduism and Buddhism, an Historical Sketch, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Roach, Blue Mountains, Australia. Hinduism and Buddhism, an Historical Sketch, Volume 1, by Charles Eliot. Chapter 11. Monks and Laymen. The great practical achievement of the Buddha was to found a religious order which has lasted to the present day. It is known as the Sangha, and its members are called bhikkhus. Footnote 526. Sanskrit, bhikshu, beggar or mendicant, because they live on alms. Kayam occurs in Brihadaranyaka Upanishad three five one. footnote. It is chiefly to this institution that the permanence of his religion is due. Corporations or confraternities, formed for the purpose of leading a particular form of life, are among the most widespread manifestations, if not of primitive worship, at any rate of that stage in which it passes into something which can be called personal religion, and at least three causes contribute to their formation. First, early institutions were narrower and more personal than those of today. In politics as well as religion, such relatively broad designations as Englishman or Frenchman, Buddhist or Christian, imply a slowly widening horizon gained by centuries of cooperation and thought. In the time of the Buddha, such national and religious names did not exist. People belonged to a clan or served some local prince. Similarly, in religious matters, they followed some teacher or worshipped some god, and in either case, if they were in earnest, they tended to become members of a society. Societies such as the Pythagorean and Orphic Brotherhoods were also common in Greece from the 6th century BC onwards, but the result was small, for the genius of the Greeks turned towards politics and philosophy. But in India, where politics had strangely little attraction for the cultured classes, energy and intelligence found an outlet in the religious life and created a multitude of religious societies. Even today, Hinduism has no one creed or code, and those who take a serious interest in religion are not merely Hindus, but follow some sect which, without damning what it does not adopt, selects its own dogmas and observances. This is not sectarianism in the sense of schism. It is merely the desire to have for oneself some personal, intimate religious life. Even in so uncompromising and levelling a creed as Islam, the devout often follow special tariqs, that is, roads or methods of the devotional life, and these tariqs, though differing more than the various orders of the Roman Catholic Church, are not regarded as sects distinct from ordinary orthodoxy. When Christ died, Christianity was not much more than such a tariq; It was an incipient religious order which had not yet broken with Judaism. This idea of the private, even secret religious body is closely allied to another, namely, that family life and worldly business are incompatible with the quest for higher things. In early ages, only priests and consecrated persons are expected to fast and practice chastity, but when once the impression prevails that such observances not only achieve particular ends, but produce wiser, happier, or more powerful lives, then they are likely to be followed by considerable numbers of the more intelligent, emotional, and credulous sections of the population. The early Christian church was influenced by the idea that the world is given over to Satan, and that he who would save himself must disown it. The gentler Hindus were actuated by two motives. First, more than other races, they felt the worry and futility of worldly life. Secondly, they had a deep-rooted belief that miraculous powers could be acquired by self-mortification and the sensations experienced by those who practiced fasting and trances confirmed this belief. The third cause for the foundation and increase of religious orders is a perception of the influence which they can exercise. The disciples of a master or the priests of a god, if numerous and organized, clearly possess a power analogous to that of an army. To use such institutions for the service and protection of the true faith is an obvious expedient of the zealot. Ecclesiastical statecraft and ambition soon make their appearance in most orders founded for the assistance of the church militant. But of this spirit, Buddhism has little to show, except in Tibet and Japan it is almost absent. The ideal of the Buddha lay within his order and was to be realized in the life of the members, they had no need to strive after any extraneous goal. The Sangha, as this order was called, arose naturally out of the social conditions of India in the time of Gotama. It was considered proper that an earnest-minded man should renounce the world and become a wanderer. In doing this, and in collecting round him a band of disciples who had a common mode of life, Gotama created nothing new. He merely did with conspicuous success what every contemporary teacher was doing. The confraternity which he founded differed from others chiefly in being broader and more human, less prone to extravagances and better organized. As we read the accounts in the Pitakas, its growth seems so simple and spontaneous that no explanation is necessary. Disciples gather round the Master, and as their numbers increase, he makes a few salutary regulations. It is almost with surprise that we find the result to be an organization which became one of the great forces of the world. The Buddha said that he taught a middle path equally distant from luxury and from self-mortification, but Europeans are apt to be struck by his condemnation of pleasure and to be repelled by a system which suppresses so many harmless activities. But contemporary opinion in India criticized his discipline as easy-going and lax. We frequently hear in the Vinaya that the people murmured and said his disciples behaved like those who still enjoy the good things of the world. Some, we are told, tried to enter the order merely to secure a comfortable existence. Footnote 527 Mahavaga 149 Confer Ibid 139 End footnote It is clear that he went to the extreme limits which public opinion allowed in dispensing with the rigours considered necessary to the religious life. And we shall best understand his spirit if we fix our attention not so much on the regime, to our way of thinking austere, which he prescribed, the single meal a day, and so on, as on his insistence that what is necessary is emancipation of heart and mind, and the cultivation of love and knowledge, all else being a matter of indifference thus he says to the ascetic kasapa that though a man perform all manner of penances yet if he has not attained the bliss which comes of good conduct a good heart and good mind he is far from being a true monk footnote Digha eight, End footnote. but when he has the heart of love that knows no anger nor ill will when he has destroyed lust and become emancipated even before death then he deserves the name of monk It is a common thing to say, he goes on, that it is hard to lead the life of a monk, but asceticism is comparatively easy. What is really hard is the conversion and emancipation of the heart. In India, where the proclivity to asceticism and self-torture is endemic, it was only natural that penance should in very truth seem easier and more satisfactory than this spiritual discipline. It won more respect and doubtless seemed more tangible and definite, more like what the world expected from a holy man. Accordingly, we find that efforts were made by Devadatta and others to induce the Buddha to increase the severity of his discipline, but he refused. Footnote 529 Kala Vaga 113 End footnote the more ascetic form of life, which he declined to make obligatory, is described in the rules known as dutangas, of which twelve or thirteen are enumerated. They are partly a stricter form of the ordinary rules about food and dress, and partly refer to the life of a hermit who lives in the woods or in a cemetery. In the Pitakas, Kasapa's disciples are described as dutavada, and the advantages arising from the observance of the dutangas are enumerated in the questions of milinda footnote 530 Samyuta kaya 141512 and Gutara kaya 114 end footnote it is probable that the buddha himself had little sympathy with them he was at any rate anxious that they should not degenerate into excesses thus he forbade his disciples to spend the season of the rains in a hollow tree or in a place where dead bodies are kept or to use an alms bowl made out of a skull footnote five three one mahavaga three twelve and footnote now Kasapa had been a Brahmin ascetic and it's probable that in tolerating the Dutungas, the buddha merely intended to allow him and his followers to continue the practices to which they were accustomed they were an influential body, and he doubtless desired their adhesion, for he was sensitive to public opinion, and anxious to conform to it when conformity involved no sacrifice of principle. Footnote five hundred thirty two or the opinion of single persons example Visaka in Mahavaga three thirteen footnote. We hear repeatedly that the laity complained of some practice of his bhikkhus, and that when the complaint was brought to his ears he ordered the objectionable practice to cease once the king of magadha asked the congregation to postpone the period of retreat during the rains until the next full moon day they referred the matter to the buddha i prescribe that you obey kings was his reply one obvious distinction between the buddha's disciples and other confraternities was that they were completely clad whereas the ajivikas jains and others went about naked the motive for this rule was no doubt decency and a similar thought made gotama insist on the use of a begging bowl whereas some sectaries collected scraps of food in their hands such extravagances led to abuses resembling the degradation of some modern fakirs Even the Jain scriptures admit that pious householders were disgusted by the ascetics who asked for a lodging in their houses. Naked, unwashed men, foul to smell and loathsome to behold. Footnote 533 Akarangasut 2.2.2 End footnote. This was the sort of life which the Buddha called Anariyam, ignoble or barbaric. With such degradation of humanity, he would have nothing to do. He forbade nakedness, as well as garments of hair and other uncomfortable costumes. The raiment which he prescribed consisted of three pieces of cloth of the colour called cassava. This was probably dull orange, selected as being unornamental. It would appear that in medieval India the colour in use was reddish at present a rather bright and not unpleasing yellow is worn in burma ceylon siam and Cambodia. originally the robes were made of rags collected and sewn together but it soon became the practice for pious laymen to supply the order with raiment in the maha and kalavagas of the vinaya pitaka we possess a large collection of regulations purporting to be issued by the buddha for the guidance of the order on such subjects as ceremonial, discipline, clothes, food, furniture and medicine. The arrangement is roughly chronological. Gotama starts as a new teacher without either followers or a code. As disciples multiply, the need for regulations and uniformity of life is felt. Each incident and difficulty that arises is reported to him and he defines the correct practice. One may suspect that many usages represented as originating in the injunctions of the master really grew up gradually. But the documents are ancient. They date from the generations immediately following the Buddha's death, and their account of his activity as an organiser is probably correct in substance. One of the first reasons which rendered regulations necessary was the popularity of the order and the respect which it enjoyed. King Bimbisara of Magadha is represented as proclaiming that quote, it is not permitted to do anything to those who join the order of the Sakyaputya Footnote five three four, Mahavaga one forty two. End footnote. Hence, robbers, debtors, slaves, soldiers anxious to escape service, and others who wished for protection against the law or merely to lead an idle life desired to avail themselves of these immunities footnote five three five but converted robbers were occasionally admitted example angulimala this resulted in the gradual elaboration of a code of discipline which did much to secure that only those actuated by proper motives could enter the order and only those who conducted themselves properly could stay within it we find traces of a distinction between those bhikkhus who were hermits and lived solitary lives in the woods and those who moved about in bands frequenting rest houses in the time of the buddha the wandering life was a reality but later most monks became residents in monasteries already in the Vinaya, we seem to breathe the atmosphere of large conventual establishments where busy superintendents see to the lodging and discipline of crowds of monks and to the distribution of the gifts made by pious laymen but the buddha himself knew the value of forest and plant life for calming and quickening the mind here are trees go and think it out he would say to his disciples at the end of a lecture Footnote 536, Samyuta Nikaya, 435, Majhima Nikaya, 8, Adfinam. On the value attached by mystics in all countries to trees and flowers, see Underhill, Mysticism, page 231. End footnote. In the poetical works of the Tripitaka, especially the collections known as the Songs of the Monks and Nuns, this feeling is still stronger we are among anchorites who pass their time in solitary meditation in the depths of forests or on mountaintops and have a sense of freedom and a joy in the life of wild things not found in cloisters these old monkish poems are somewhat wearisome as continuous reading but their monotonous enthusiasm about the conquest of desire is leavened by a sincere and observant love of nature They sing of the scenes in which meditation is pleasant, the flowery banks of streams that flow through reeds and grasses of many colours, as well as the mysterious midnight forest when the dew falls and wild beasts howl. They note the plumage of the blue peacock, the flight of the yellow crane, and the gliding movements of the water-snake. It does not appear that these amiable hermits arrogated any superiority to themselves, or that there was any opposition between them and the rest of the brethren. They preferred a form of the religious life which the Buddha would not make compulsory, but it is older than Buddhism and not yet dead in India. The Sangha exercised no hierarchical authority over them, and they accepted such simple symbols of union as the observance of Upasatha days. The character of the Sangha has not materially changed since its constitution took definite shape towards the end of the master's life. It was and is simply a body of people who believe that the higher life cannot be lived in any existing form of society, and therefore combine to form a confraternity where they are relieved of care for food and raiment, where they can really take no thought for the morrow and turn the cheek to the smiter they were not a corporation of priests and they had no political aims any free man unless his parents or the state had a claim on him and unless he suffered from certain diseases was admitted he took no vows of obedience and was at any time at liberty to return to the world though the sangha as founded by the buddha did not claim still less exact anything from the laity yet it was their duty their most obvious and easy method of acquiring merit to honour and support monks, to provide them with food, clothes, and lodging, and with everything which they might lawfully possess. Strictly speaking, a monk does not beg for food, nor thank for what he receives. He gives the layman a chance of doing a good deed, and the donor, not the recipient, should be thankful. At first the Buddha admitted converts to the order himself, but he subsequently prescribed two simple ceremonies for admission to the novitiate, and to full privileges, respectively. They are often described as ordinations, but are rather applications from postulants which are granted by a chapter consisting of at least ten members. The first, called Pabajar, or going forth, that is, leaving the world, is effected when the would-be novice, duly shorn and robed in yellow, recites the three refuges and the ten precepts. Footnote 537. They are... Abstinence from 1. Destroying life, 2. Stealing, 3. Impurity, 4. Lying, 5. Intoxicants, 6. Eating at forbidden times, 7. Dancing, music and theatres, 8. Garlands, perfumes, ornaments, 9. High or large beds, 10. Accepting gold or silver. End footnote. Full membership is obtained by the further ceremony called Upasampada. The postulant, who must be at least 20 years old, is examined in order to ascertain that he is sui juris and has no disqualifying disease or other impediment. Then he is introduced to the chapter by, quote, a learned and competent monk, end quote, who asks those who are in favour of his admission to signify the same by their silence, and those who are not to speak If this formula is repeated three times without calling forth objection, the upasampada is complete. The newly admitted bhikkhu must have an upajaha, or preceptor, on whom he waits as a servant, seeing to his clothes, bath, bed, etc. In return, the preceptor gives him spiritual instruction, supervises his conduct and tends him when sick. The chapter, which had power to accept new monks and regulate discipline, consisted of the monks inhabiting a parish or district, whose extent was fixed by the Sangha itself. Its reality as a corporate body was secured by stringent regulations that under no excuse must the bhikkhus resident in a parish omit to assemble on Upasatha days. Footnote 538. These are practically equivalent to Sundays being the new moon full moon and the eighth days from the new and full moon in tibet however the fourteenth fifteenth twenty ninth and thirtieth of each month are observed the vinaya represents the initiative for these simple observances as coming not from the buddha but from king bimbisara who pointed out that the adherents of other schools met on fixed days and that it would be well if his disciples did the same Footnote five three nine Mahavaga two one to two, end footnote. He assented and ordered that when they met, they should recite a formula called Patimokha, which is still in use. It is a confessional service in which a list of offences is read out, and the brethren are asked three times after each item, quote, "Are you pure in this matter?" End quote. Silence indicates a good conscience. Only if a monk has anything to confess does he speak. It is then in the power of the assembly to prescribe some form of expiation. The offender may be rebuked, suspended, or even expelled, but he must admit his guilt. Otherwise, disciplinary measures are forbidden. What has been said above about the daily life of the Buddha applies equally to the life of his disciples. Footnote 540 chapter eight section three like him they rose early journeyed or went to beg their only meal until about half-past eleven and spent the heat of the day in retirement and meditation in the evening followed discussion and instruction it was forbidden to accept gold and silver but the order might possess parks and monasteries and receive offerings of food and clothes the personal possessions allowed to a monk were only the three robes a girdle an arms bowl a razor a needle and a water strainer footnote five four one required not so much to purify water as to prevent the accidental destruction of insects End footnote everything else which might be given to an individual had to be handed over to the confraternity and held in common and the vinaya shows clearly how a band of wandering monks following their teacher from place to place speedily grew into an influential corporation possessing parks and monasteries near the principal cities the life in these establishments attained a high level of comfort according to the standard of the times and the number of restrictive precepts suggests a tendency towards luxury This was natural, for the laity were taught that their duty was to give and the order had to decide how much it could properly receive from those pious souls who were only too happy to acquire merit. In the larger Viharas, for instance, at Savati, there were halls for exercise, that is, walking up and down, halls with fires in them, warm baths and storerooms. The year of the Bhikkhus was divided into two parts. During nine months, they might wander about, live in the woods, or reside in a monastery. During the remaining three months, known as Vasa or rainy season, residence in a monastery was obligatory. Footnote 542. It might begin either the day after the full moon of Asala, June or July, or a month later. In either case, the period was three months. Mahavaga 3 2. End footnote. This custom, as mentioned, existed in India before the Buddha's time, and the Pitakas represent him adopting it, chiefly out of deference to public opinion. He did not prescribe any special observances for the period of Vasa, but this was the time when people had the most leisure, since it was hard to move about, and also when the monks were brought into continual contact with the inhabitants of a special locality. So it naturally became regarded as the appropriate season for giving instruction to the laity. The end of the rainy season was marked by a ceremony called Pavarana, at which the monks asked one another to pardon any offences that might have been committed, and immediately after it came the Kathina ceremony or distribution of robes. Kathina signifies the store of raw cotton cloth presented by the laity and held as common property until distributed to individuals. It would be tedious to give even an abstract of the regulations contained in the Vinaya. They are almost exclusively concerned with matters of daily life, dwellings, furniture, medicine, and so forth. And if we compare them with the statutes of other religious orders, we are struck by the fact that the Buddha makes no provision for work, obedience, or worship. In the western branches of the Christian church, and to some extent, though less markedly, in the eastern, the theory prevails that, quote, Satan finds some mischief still for idle hands to do, end quote and manual labor is a recognized part of the monastic life. But in India, conditions and ideals were different. The resident monk grew out of the wandering teacher or disputant, who was not likely to practice any trade. It was a maxim that religious persons lived on alms, and occupations which we consider harmless, such as agriculture, were held to be unsuitable because such acts as plowing may destroy animal life probably the buddha would not have admitted the value of manual labor as a distraction and defense against evil thoughts no one was more earnestly bent on the conquest of such thoughts but he wished to extirpate them not merely to crowd them out energy and activity are insisted on again and again and there is no attempt to discourage mental activity reading formed no part of the culture of the time but a life of travel and new impressions continual discussion and the war of wits must have given the bhikkhus a more stimulating training than was to be had in the contemporary brahmanic schools the buddha's regulations contain no vow of obedience or recognition of rank other than simple seniority or the relation of teacher to pupil as time went on various hierarchical expedients were invented in different countries since the management of large bodies of men necessitates authority in some form but except in lamaism this authority has rarely taken the form familiar to us in the roman and oriental churches where the bishops and higher clergy assume the right to direct both the belief and the conduct of others in the sangha no monk could give orders to another he who disobeyed the precepts of the order ceased to be a member of it either ipso facto or if he refused to comply with the expiation prescribed Also, there was no compulsion, no suppression of discussion, no delegated power to explain or supplement the truth. Hence, differences of opinion in the Buddhist church have largely taken the shape of schools of thought rather than of separate and polemical sects. Dissension, indeed, has not been absent, but of persecution, such as stains the annals of the Christian church. There is hardly any record. The fact that the Sangha though nearly 500 years older than any Christian institution, is still vigorous, shows that this noble freedom is not unsuccessful as a practical policy. The absence of anything that can be called worship or cultus in Gautama's regulations is remarkable. He not merely sets aside the older religious rites, such as prayer and sacrifice. He does not prescribe anything whatever which is in ordinary language a religious act for the Patimokkha, pavarana etc are not religious ceremonies but chapters of the order held with an ethical object and the procedure the proposal of a resolution and the request for an expression of opinion is that adopted in modern public meetings except that assent is signified by silence It is true that the ceremonial of a religion is not likely to develop during the life of the Founder, for pious recollection and recitation of his utterances in the form of scripture are as yet impossible. Still, if the Buddha had had any belief whatever in the edifying effect of ritual, he would not have failed to institute some ceremony appealing if not to supernatural beings, at least to human emotions. Even the few observances which he did prescribe seemed to be the result of suggestion from others, and the only inference to be drawn is that he regarded every form of religious observance as entirely superfluous. At first the Sangha consisted exclusively of men. It was not until about five years after its establishment that the entreaties of the Buddha's foster mother, who had become a widow, and of Ananda prevailed on him to throw it open to women as well. Footnote five four three Kalavaga, ten one. End footnote. but it would seem that the permission was wrung from him against his judgment his reluctance was not due to a low estimate of female ability for he recognized and made use of the influence of women in social and domestic life and he admitted that they were as capable as men of attaining the higher stages of spiritual and intellectual progress This is also attested by the pitakas for some of the most important and subtle arguments and expositions are put into the mouths of nuns footnote five four four see the papers by mrs bode in the journal of the royal asiatic society eighteen ninety three pages five one seven to five six six and seven six three to seven nine eight and mrs reese davids in ninth congress of orientalists volume one Page 344. End footnote. Indeed, the objections raised by the Buddha, though emphatic, are as arguments singularly vague, and the eight rules for nuns which he laid down and compared to an embankment built to prevent a flood seem dictated not by the danger of immorality, but by the fear that women might aspire to the management of the order and to be equals or superiors of monks so far as we can tell his fears were not realized the female branch of the order showed little vigor after its first institution but it does not appear that it was a cause of weakness or corruption women were influential in the infancy of buddhism but we hear little of the nuns when this first ardour was over we may surmise that it was partly due to personal devotion to Gotama, and also that there was a growing tendency to curtail the independence allowed to women by earlier Aryan usage. The daughters of Asoka play some part in the narratives of the conversion of Ceylon and Nepal, but after the early days of the Church, female names are not prominent. Subsequently, the succession became interrupted and as nuns can receive ordination only from other nuns and not from monks it could not be restored the so-called nuns of the present day are merely religious women corresponding to the sisters of protestant churches but are not ordained members of an order but the right of women to enjoy the same spiritual privileges as men is not denied in theory and in practice buddhism has done nothing to support or commend the system of the harem or zenana In some Buddhist countries, such as Burma and Siam, women enjoy almost the same independence as in Europe. In China and Japan, their status is not so high, but one period when Buddhism was powerful in Japan, from 800 to 1100 AD, was marked by the number of female writers, and among the Manchus and Tibetans, women enjoy considerable freedom and authority those who follow the law of the buddha but are not members of the sangha are called upasakas footnote five four five feminine upasika and footnote that is worshippers or adherents the word may be conveniently rendered by laymen although the distinction between clergy and laity as understood in most parts of europe does not quite correspond to the distinction between bhikkhus and upasakas european clergy are often thought of as interpreters of the deity and whenever they have had the power they have usually claimed the right to supervise and control the moral or even the political administration of their country something similar may be found in Lamaism, but it forms no part of gotama's original institution nor of the buddhist church as seen today in burma siam and ceylon the members of the sangha are not priests or mediators They have joined a confraternity in order to lead a higher life for which ordinary society has no place. They will teach others, not as those whose duty it is to make the laity conform to their standard, but as those who desire to make known the truth. And easy as is the transition from this attitude to the other, it must be admitted that Buddhism has rarely laid itself open to the charge of interfering in politics or of seeking temporal authority. Rather, may it be accused of a tendency to indolence. In some cases, elementary education is in the hands of the monks, and their monasteries serve the purpose of village schools. Elsewhere, they are harmless recluses, whom the unsympathetic critic may pity as useless, but can hardly condemn as ambitious or interfering. This is not, however, altogether true of Tibet and the Far East. It is sometimes said that the only real Buddhists are the members of the Sangha, and there is some truth in this, particularly in China, where one cannot count as a Buddhist everyone who occasionally intends a Buddhist service. But on the other hand, Gautama accorded to the laity a definite and honorable position, and in the Patakas they notify their conversion by a special formula. They cannot indeed lead the perfect life... But they can ensure birth in happy states, and a good layman may even attain nirvana on his deathbed. But though the pious householder, quote, takes his refuge in the law and in the order of monks, from whom he learns the law, yet these monks make no attempt to supervise or even to judge his life. The only punishment which the order inflicts, to turn down the bowl and refuse to accept alms from guilty hands, is reserved for those who have tried to injure it and is not inflicted on notorious evil livers. It is the business of a monk to spread true knowledge and good feeling around him without inquiring into the thoughts and deeds of those who do not spontaneously seek his counsel. Indeed, it may be said that in Burma it is the laity who supervise the monks rather than vice versa. Those bhikkhus who fall short of the accepted standard especially in chastity are compelled by popular opinion to leave the monastery or village where they have misbehaved this reminds us of the criticisms of laymen reported in the vinaya and the deference which the buddha paid to them the ethical character of buddhism and its superiority to other indian systems are shown in the precepts which it lays down for laymen ceremony and doctrine have hardly any place in this code but it enjoins good conduct and morality moderation in pleasures and consideration for others only five commandments are essential for a good life but they are perhaps more comprehensive and harder to keep than the decalogue for they prescribe abstinence from the five sins of taking life drinking intoxicants lying stealing and unchastity it is meritorious to observe in addition three other precepts namely to use no garlands or perfumes to sleep on a mat spread on the ground and not to eat after midday pious laymen keep all these eight precepts at least on upasatha days and often make a vow to observe them for some special period the nearer a layman can approximate to the life of a monk the better for his spiritual health but still the aims and ideals and consequently the methods of the lay and religious life are different the bhikkhu is not of this world he has cut himself loose from its ties, pleasures, and passions. He strives not for heaven, but for arhatship. But the layman, though he may profitably think of nirvana and final happiness, may also rightly aspire to be born in some temporary heaven. The law merely bids him be a kind, temperate, prudent man of the world. It is only when he speaks to the monks that the Buddha really speaks to his own and gives his own thoughts only for them are the high selfless aspirations the austere counsels of perfection and the promises of bliss and something beyond bliss but the lay morality is excellent in its own sphere the good respectable life and its teaching is most earnest and natural in those departments where the hard unsentimental precepts of the higher code jar on western minds whereas the monk severs all family ties and is fettered by no domestic affection This is the field which the layman can cultivate with most profit. It was against his judgment that the Buddha admitted women to his order, and in bidding his monks beware of them, he said many hard things. But for women in the household life, the Pitakas show an appreciation and respect which is illustrated by the position held by women in Buddhist countries, from the devout and capable matron Visakha down to the women of Burma in the present day. The Buddha even praised the ancients because they married for love and did not buy their wives. Footnote 546 Sutta Nipata 289 End footnote The right life of a layman is described in several suttas. Footnote 547 Example Maha Mangala and Dharmika Sutta in Sutta Nipata 2 4 and 14 End footnote And in all of them Though almsgiving, religious conversation, and hearing the law are commended, the main emphasis is on such social virtues as pleasant speech, kindness, temperance, consideration for others, and affection. The most complete of these discourses, the Sigalovada Sutta, footnote five four eight Dikakaya thirty one, end footnote relates how the buddha when starting one morning to beg alms in rajagaha saw the householder sigala bowing down with clasped hands and saluting the four quarters the nadir and the zenith the object of the ceremony was to avert any evil which might come from these six points the buddha told him that this was not the right way to protect oneself a man should regard his parents as the east his teachers as the south His wife and children as the West, his friends as the North, his servants as the Nadir, and monks and Brahmins as the Zenith. By fulfilling his duty to these six classes, a man protects himself from all evil which may come from the six points. Then he expounded in order the mutual duties of 1. Parents and children, 2. Pupils and teachers, 3. Husband and wife, 4. Friends, 5. Master and servant, six laity and clergy the precepts which follow show how much common sense and good feeling gotama could bring to bear on the affairs of everyday life when he gave them his attention and the whole classification of reciprocal obligations recalls the five relationships of chinese morality three of which are identical with gotama's divisions namely parents and children husband and wife and friends but national characteristics make themselves obvious in the differences Gautama says nothing about politics or loyalty. The Chinese list, which opens with the mutual duties of sovereigns and subjects, is silent respecting the Church and clergy. The Sangha is an Indian institution and invites comparison with that remarkable feature of Indian social life, the Brahmin caste. At first sight the two seem mutually opposed, for the one is a hereditary, though intellectual, aristocracy claiming the possession of incommunicable knowledge and power the other a corporation open to all who choose to renounce the world and lead a good life and this antithesis contains historical truth the sangha like the similar orders of the jains and other kshatriya sects was in its origin a protest against the exclusiveness and ritualism of the brahmins yet compared with anything to be found in other countries the two bodies have something in common For instance, it is a meritorious act to feed either Brahmins or Bhikkhus. Europeans are inclined to call both of them priests, but this is inaccurate, for a Bhikkhu rarely deserves the title. Footnote 549 It may seem superfluous to insist on this, yet Warren, in his Buddhism in Translations, uniformly renders Bhikkhu by priest. End footnote and nowadays Brahmins are not necessarily priests, nor priests Brahmins. But in India, there is an old and widespread idea that he who devotes himself to a religious and intellectual life, and the two spheres, though they do not coincide, overlap more than in Europe, should be not only respected, but supported by the rest of the world. He is not a professional man in the sense that lawyers, doctors and clergymen are, but rather an aristocrat, though from the earliest times the nobles of india have had a full share of pride and self-confidence the average hindu has always believed in another kind of upper class entered in some sects by birth in others by merit but in general a well-defined body the conduct of whose members does not fail to command respect the du ut des principle is certainly not wanting, but the holy man is honored not so much because he will make an immediate return by imparting some instruction or performing some ceremony, but because to honor him is a good act which, like other good acts, will sooner or later find its reward. The Buddha is not represented as blaming the respect paid to Brahmins, but as saying that Brahmins must deserve it. Birth and plaited hair do not make a true Brahman any more than a shaven head makes a bhikkhu. But he who has renounced the world, who is pure in thought, word and deed, who follows the eightfold path and perfects himself in knowledge, he is the true Brahman. Footnote 550 The same idea occurs in the Upanishads. Example, Brihadaranyaka Upanishad four four twenty three Quote, he becomes a true Brahman. End end footnote: Men of such aspirations are commoner in India than elsewhere, and more than elsewhere they form a class which is defined by each sect for itself. But in all sects, it is an essential part of piety to offer respect and gifts to this religious aristocracy. End of section 42.